Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Caravan Podcast, a show about Pakistan's startup ecosystem where we have intimate conversations with founders and investors driven to catapult Pakistan into the digital age. We'll discuss what it's really like to start a business, the highs and the lows, the setbacks, the comebacks, the lessons, everything. I'm your host, as always, Ahmad Mia, partner at Caravan, a community-driven venture capital platform. Now, given the nascent ecosystem, there's a massive spread between the talent in the country and the resources that are available to support them. Our mission at Caravan is to close that gap by providing both capital and expertise at the earliest of stages. You can find more information about Caravan at www.caravan.vc. In this episode of Caravan Podcast, I get to sit down with Philip Bahoshi, the founder of Magnet, the largest online community for startups across the MENA region. And now with their first report, Pakistan as well. So let's get straight to Philip and understand what he thinks about the Pakistani startup ecosystem. So let's get straight to him. Philip, thank you so much for joining us on the Caravan Podcast. I really appreciate you kind of taking out the time and, and sharing your insights with us. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed looking at the Pakistan-based report. I know that you guys have been looking at Pakistan as well. I'd like to kind of hear a little background about you and about Magnet, and then we'll kind of jump right in and, and, and kind of understand how you guys are looking at Pakistan. I'd love to kind of get some of the learnings that you guys had starting and looking at MENA as an ecosystem. And then now that you guys are looking into Pakistan as well, looking at how it's kind of evolving, seeing the similarities and, and, and what are some of the insights that you're kind of gathering from how MENA evolved to how Pakistan is, is slowly evolving? Well, thank you very much for having me um, on the podcast. It's a, it's a real pleasure to be here. Um, so Magnet effectively is the data platform for the MENA region, and we're looking to continue to expand that. Uh, basically, our what is our focus is on data, data analytics to support founders, investors, stakeholders from across what we're calling emerging venture markets, EVMs, make informed and educated decisions, whether it's for investment, whether it's for policy, whether it's for scaling. And at the core of that, data is really the resource or the, the gold that will help drive that. Our why is effectively, for me, that data transparency can break down borders. Yeah. And in the Middle East, when we started, for instance, there were plenty of conferences, there were plenty of platforms, whether it's government or private, that were supporting accelerators and incubators. But what there wasn't was an independent, objective platform that brought the ecosystem together. Not from a news perspective, because I think that there's plenty of news platforms, but from a data transparency and, and data analytics side of things. And that's really been when we started bringing out our reports, the key driver to much of what it is that we've continued to focus on. And as we continue to scale, 
um, for um, for us, that's really the the, the differentiating factor. Um, the platform is designed in a connectivity way. We have features and products that allow people to connect person to person yeah. because I think that the startup ecosystem is different to the wider corporate community. And we do have a deal flow tool that allows startups to apply at the moment to over 90 different uh, funding institutions. And Interestingly, through COVID, we've seen a real pickup of this because obviously there are less conferences, less events and less meetups taking place um, that that allows an online uh, conduit for these people to be able to connect. 100%. But and you guys core, are set up the, at the perfect way for the COVID kind of scenario. Yeah, and so, so we've definitely been doubling down on that. But But really, it's the ability for us to break down the barriers uh, across regions. So when you ask how it is that we're going to be covering Pakistan, our aim is not to necessarily like um, act as a media platform or as a platform that's really gonna act as an incubator or accelerator. What we're trying to do is two things. And, and as we do Turkey and Pakistan now and look to scale beyond into emerging markets, um, Interestingly, it came out of a tweet that uh, when I visited Turkey, somebody asked, why is it the Turkish startups don't come to the Middle East more often? Now, without going into the politics and the language, all of which was a selection, uh, people were basically asked why uh, you don't do it. And 70% of the respondents, and I think there was over 300 people that responded, said, nobody has shown us the way. In many of these cases, there's a lack of visibility of 100%. what's happening in other ecosystems. And not to say that there aren't magnet platforms that exist across each of these uh, areas. The interesting thing is that they're very self-serving. They're almost incestuous and they're very driven in the vertical of what it is that they're supporting. Whereas what we're trying to do is help cross pollinate between the two. And I'm sure we'll come on to discuss this, but really that's where the opportunity exists. It's uh, Pakistani founders and investors learning and, and hearing about stories that are happening in MENA and MENA startups being able to either access new markets or investors beginning to become a lot more aware of opportunities that may 100%. exist in Pakistan. And that's kind of why Caravan was set up as well, right? Because it was to change the Pakistani narrative. It's how do you get more people into the ecosystem and how do you break down the barriers of information from if you have 30 million, $40 million in venture capital money in Pakistan, if you want to create billion dollar startups, you need 300, $400 million coming into the markets and you can't do that in Pakistan currently. So the only way of doing that is creating more clarity, creating more visibility on what's going on in Pakistani, in the Pakistani startup ecosystem and getting the right kind of people on board to understand whether right. it be expats for us um, or a diaspora or other investors from across the pond for in, in the MENA region. And I, so my two cents from what we've learned in the MENA region, again, when Magnet started, there was very little research and data on this. And that created a somewhat opaque environment whereby governments thought that they were doing things in the right way. Investors definitely benefited from the lack of transparency. Yeah. Um, general media attention was driven by hype and, and, and headlines without really knowing what the facts and figures were. Once you started having almost a benchmark and an element of kind of consistent reporting, again, in an environment where there is no regulatory requirement to report. I mean, so when you look at companies that do similar things to us in the US or Europe, you almost go to company houses or, or, or exchanges or, or uh, registration houses. All the information is very transparent. Yeah. We're, we're in an environment where the information is very opaque. And therefore, being able to consolidate that information effectively provides decision makers, whether it's governments that need to work out 
who's doing what. So at the moment, you're, you're seeing in MENA, um, different governments take different approaches, um, whether it be the UAE, whether it's Dubai and Abu Dhabi, whether it's Saudi Arabia, whether it's Egypt, where the, the three big almost ecosystems are, are leading the pack, uh, and how the other ones then need to change uh, and develop their strategies from a policy perspective or from a specialization perspective. What you're beginning to see is some countries decide, well, we can't do everything and compete on anything. How about we take an industry vertical or we take a, a segment vertical or a stage vertical that we can specialize in? And that comes through this information sharing and information breakdown that can help them um, uh, make those decisions. And I think that's some of the learnings that we saw. So. One of the hardest things in the region is it takes patience. This doesn't happen overnight. Yeah. Um, some of the massive success stories that we've seen, the Kareem's, the Souks, uh, Zawiya, the InstaShop, which was recently acquired, um, all of that creates FOMO. It brings awareness. At the same time, I think there's been an acknowledgement that we shouldn't just focus on all the success stories. There needs to be an acknowledgement of some of the failures, um, understanding those failures. What were, what were the details and the data around the failures of some of those companies? And so when I start looking at the Pakistani ecosystem, in reality, it was a, it, it, there's one thing you read the hype and you speak to people who say it's booming, but what does booming mean? And then you can start putting it into numbers and, and you start charting it. How do you put a threshold to that booming? How do you put a threshold to that booming? I think a lot was said um, when I spoke to the investors last week on the webinar, which was really interesting, but it did remind me of the MENA region four, five, six years ago, yeah. whereby key players in place, um, a lot of activity happening, lots of discussions with the regulators and governments, but still an element of, well, we, we haven't quite seen exactly what this is going to look like, but at the same time, patience is required so that you can start seeing that growth year over year. And how, one of the questions I asked is, how do you build on international awareness? How do you allow internet, for me personally, one of the key questions is, there's a lot of lack of transparency on how an international startup can enter Pakistan. If you speak to any of the key investors, they'll tell you large market, decently cheap talent, um, et cetera, true. But how does one incorporate? Who's the legal? So I asked these questions the other day, and it's very similar to the MENA region back in the day. Nobody knew how to set up in certain free zones, which was the preferred free zone. Who is your preferred um, legal counsel? Um, and with time, you start seeing the success stories and then the future generations of entrepreneurs. And there's a bit more knowledge and awareness that can then be disseminated to the rest of the entrepreneurial ecosystem. It's fascinating how you say that, right? Like, and I completely agree with you because there isn't that sense of clarity because you haven't really had that much in like not just that much insight but people looking in within the ecosystem the government did not look at what is a safe agreement what is a legal entity how do you look at shareholder agreements first for for companies like startups in pakistan and and in different verticals and and so these just like you said are conversations that are happening and that will take time but again if you want to bring people over from outside markets it's it's incredibly important for us to take that understanding from MENA and from the US and Europe and these other markets that have had this kind of burst of, of startup activity to kind of understand that these are the pain points, the, the, the bare minimum pain points that we need to solve for right away for us to be able to flourish faster. Because if you think MENA took 10 years, 15 years to get to where it is today, right, from the initial conversations that you're speaking about when some of the first investments were, were, were done with Zawiya, with, with Maktoub, um, with Amy Info, with, with Karim now. 
from that point and looking at the Pakistani ecosystem where we're jumping from the like not having 3G, 4G, now getting into, 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 data, into yep. data points where we have 3G, 4G, but we just completely skipped the online revolution of, of using computers. So how do we kind of get that same thing happening with startups in Pakistan? How do we kind of get more information, get better clarity? I mean, if you look at the index of how easy it is to do business in Pakistan, like you're right, like it's not very easy. Like to yeah. set up a company in Pakistan, where I think 140, 130 on the, on, on the global index. So if the, the, the core focus of Pakistan's government right now is um, digital Pakistan, you know, focus on startups, yeah. create more wealth, create, uh, create more jobs, and, and look to, to bring technology. And, and now, the, now the State Bank of Pakistan is, is issuing new things for fintechs as well. But the core problem still exists where there isn't that much legal information on yep. how to set up a company. It's not a one-step process. Opening up a bank account takes insane amounts of documentation. It's not that easy for people to kind of come in, let alone people in Pakistan to be able to start a company, right? And, yep. and if it's not the visibility that how much progress startups can bring to an economy, and if we don't learn from ecosystems like MENA, which is kind of why I wanted to kind of understand what you saw. Yeah, so I mean, just just to share a few things. One thing is there, and the Middle East was, I think, um, it's one of the biggest challenges they had. Number one, you can't import ecosystems. Yeah. So what I mean by that is you can't copy Silicon Valley. I think sometimes people forget that that was built and the origins of which was the 1930s, 40s, years of learning from venture capitalists, exits, returned investments. Everything ultimately is driven by a, a, a financial reward. And that reward in the venture capital world takes up to 10 years on average to see an exit, right? So that, that takes the patience that we mentioned. So number one, you can't just import or copy an ecosystem uh, from abroad. A second thing that I think is very important is that when you begin to see these entrepreneurs that have actually done it, the public-private conversation needs to involve those protagonists. What do I mean by that? Um, I think that politicians coming up with legal structures or policies to support startups uh, with people that haven't done it themselves is a very big challenge. Yeah. Getting advice and learning from the so-called, I think they mentioned the other day, Wapistanis or people that have potentially had experiences elsewhere in that space, but can actually educate on what the major challenges are and localizing that to Pakistan will further help develop the ecosystem. The third is, and this is something I've said many times, I'm fortunate to be on the Dubai Future Council here where we discuss these type of things for innovation entrepreneurship. For me, everything comes down to the root of how do you differentiate a high growth tech startup to an SME. The policies, initiatives, legal framework and uh, approach that you need to support a airlift, a successfully high growth tech startup is very different to a traditional yeah. SME. And the fourth point that I would add to that is that you almost have to backward engineer it. Whenever I go and speak to government entities, whether it's in Saudi, UAE, et cetera, they all want unicorns. Like there's a pursuit of a unicorn. Yeah. Now, whether I agree with that or not, you need to backward engineer what a unicorn is. A unicorn is a company that is valued at a billion dollars and is a private startup. Okay, understood. 
take simple maths, theoretically, they need to raise something in the region of $200 million to be able to get to a valuation of a billion dollars plus. Well, for that to happen, you need companies that can invest $200 million. Now, if that's not gonna come from the local ecosystem, you very quickly need to see how do you create a regulatory framework that will allow international investors with 100%. big pockets to invest in companies that when they do their due diligence, they have confidence that those companies can be scalable. And that goes all the way back to the first angel round, because the more complicated you make it become from an, from an operational or from a, from a legal structure perspective, the harder it is for these companies to get uh, outside rounds of fundings. So those are just some of the things that we learn here. People are becoming a lot more aware of that in the MENA region, and so they're beginning to address those things. But let's be clear, they haven't solved for that. The biggest, and it was something that I think Ali or Atif the other day mentioned, the biggest advantage that Pakistan has is the size of the population and the fact that you have one government means that you're only really dealing with one entity or multiple entities within Pakistan to try and solve these issues. Whereas in MENA, for instance, you're talking to 17 regulators, yeah. 17 governments, 17 different uh, uh, legal frameworks that need to be addressed there you can get a head start because ultimately you're dealing with one country a hundred percent um completely agree with you i just hope that these kinds of conversations are able to happen right like in in, in a country in an economy like pakistan things do tend to take time sometimes and it's just how do we bring that awareness and the top the, the, the top side of, of the benefit that you can have and make sure that these regulatory frameworks and legal structures are, are being done. Because as you said, like if you're going to get money from outside and if you don't kind of address it at the angel rounds, you're going to be untouchables. By the, by the time someone from outside even thinks about investing in your round, your round might be uninvestable because the cap table is so messed up or there's no legal structure around it. And we've seen this in companies in Pakistan, right? Like we are structured in ADGM in Abu Dhabi and we're investing in Pakistan. So it's even we as early as we are in, into Pakistan's ecosystem, we're seeing this right now. The other thing I'd love to kind of talk to you about and kind of understand the similarities or, or how you kind of look into this is valuations. How do you look yeah. at valuations and how was there a course correction in valuations in startups in MENA early on? Because what I see is a lot of, because this can happen in the US, because this can happen in MENA, this is the same valuation in Pakistan. And what I'm trying to understand is are people, in your opinion, are people looking at companies in Pakistan and the demographics of Pakistan from the ground up where they understand who the consuming class is? You can give out the top line numbers of, yeah, we have a population of 200 million people, but our population is 20% banked. And there's a reason for that, right? And so our, our GDP is at around 1500. India is at, I think, almost double that. So there is a reason for the nascency of our ecosystem. Do you see similarities of how people are thinking about valuations and about companies in MENA or at least five, 10 years ago in MENA to what you were able to kind of see in Pakistan today? Well, so, I mean, let, let me be absolutely transparent and honest. We've yet to tackle the valuation problem in Pakistan, and we've spent quite a long time trying to understand the, the valuation uh, situation in MENA. And the truth of the matter is, it is and remains a very opaque subject. Um, 
it is the essence and the, the true secret source of each investor is by keeping it close to their chests and the startups, you create this element of opaqueness and, and blurriness that benefits ultimately both sides. Yeah. I can tell you that four or five years ago in the MENA region, it was fingers in the air and a negotiation tactic. Uh, in the Middle East, it has remained a horse trading exercise and it has continued to be, that is the benchmark, convince me why it should be otherwise. But the benchmark isn't necessarily correct. It's, it's driven by hereditary. It's driven by demand and supply. Ultimately, I can, in, in, in the venture capital space, which is what you know, valuations are ultimately driven by demand and supply. If you're a hot startup, you can probably get a very good valuation. If you're struggling to get cash, you'll get a very low valuation. Not really built on fundamentals as such, because there is such a mismatch in the demand and supply for capital in the region. One of the things that I'm trying to drive with Magnet, and we'll look to be addressing this in the coming months, is at least to have the right benchmarks, to be able to say that the average seed investments around at in this country or this industry is the following. And then you can negotiate up and down from that rather than what the investor chooses to tell you. Now, what I think is the situation in Pakistan is it's even more blurry than it is in MENA. In MENA, you're beginning to see entrepreneur chats come up on Facebook and WhatsApp and LinkedIn. The power of the crowd is creating a mechanism by which people can begin to negotiate. People are doing more of their due diligence on investors and their approach. There are more, the, the safe and kiss note is a more standardized form for legal documentation than it ever was before. And therefore early rounds before you start getting legal uh, support, it's become easier for you to find norms of valuations. So I still think that um, there's a long way to go, but from four or five years ago, where it may have been 10, 15 VCs who each required legal um, support, both from the side of the entrepreneur and the, the investor, to come up with valuations and term sheets and et cetera, there is some element of standardization, especially at the early stage. Because as you develop as a startup, then it comes down to commercials and the growth of the company and your numbers, which is very different to when you're a seed stage or an angel stage. I think in Pakistan, again, depending on the demand and supply, clearly it's in favor of the investors with very limited capital, as we already saw, if it's 20, 30 million that has been deployed yeah. year to date. We're not talking about huge amounts of revenue, uh, of uh, capital, employable and capital, therefore yeah. the, the deployable capital. And therefore, ultimately, the, 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 the demand um, is going to be uh, much stronger in terms of the number of startups asking for capital than supply. But I believe that as more people have conversations, as more data comes out, even in the absence of valuations, you can take the average deal size uh, as a proxy, you can begin to improve the conversation for valuations in favor of startups. Brilliant. And now coming down to, have you seen an interest in more MENA VCs wanting to look at Pakistan and dive deeper into Pakistani, Pakistani startups? So, I mean, I, we just released the report. So uh, we will be continuing to observe the, the feedback from the report on Pakistani um, uh, startups from MENA VCs. I think historically we have already seen one or two participate, not in the yeah. same way as they have in Turkey. Far more have invested in Turkey than they have in Pakistan. Our hope, as I kind of said at the get-go, is that through this increased transparencies, more conversations between yourself and your, your peers in the MENA space and vice versa begins to take place. But I think what becomes quite interesting is that when we look at 
Southeast Asia, for instance, a lot of investors have looked at Middle East as a, an opportunity in two ways. And I think that this may become more common uh, with the MENA investors. One is either to invest directly because they see opportunities or that they invest via their portfolio companies. So you look at a portfolio company that is in logistics, that is in food and beverage, that is in healthcare, that says, okay, you're doing another funding round. How about we'll give you an extra X amount in cash, but please explore the Pakistani ecosystem for companies either to grow organically or inorganically through M&A to see what are equivalents in that space. And I think that will be the trend moving forwards. Immediate feedback, I don't have because we just released the report. Longer term, my view is that that will be the conversation that begins to take place. The second element is how can they acquire talent? More understanding of talent from both sides. But I, I, the, the, the point on the market comes down to the operations, yeah. which for me is, is, is as a startup founder who explored the Pakistani ecosystem, just couldn't understand the legal framework and, and not from a hiring, but from a revenue generating. What is that structure? Uh, what does it need to look like? And again, Magnet's not a great example. We're, we're more B2B, and, but when you're a B2C or when you're a, a, a scalable company, what exactly is that structure? And there's definitely an opportunity both ways of better understanding how Pakistani companies can scale beyond Pakistan and how can companies in MENA or who should they go to come to Pakistan to potentially scale? Because the point I made on the webinar was the more competition, the more talent that can get hired by international companies from MENA, the more experience they get with these type of companies, the more future founders, the more future employees of startups in Pakistani you will have, which will improve the quality of the startups in Pakistan and hence the more capital that potentially gets deployed uh, from the region. A hundred percent. I mean, we've, we're already seeing this with the likes of Kareem and the people from Kareem that have exited and, and now come back to Pakistan who have a little bit more wealth and are wanting to start more companies and are a little bit more polished and have the understanding of frameworks and, and how to create scalable companies, um, for sure. Two questions. One would be, what were some of the insights that you drew in while you were doing the report in Pakistan that kind of came front and center to you that kind of flags that you, you thought of while you were comparing it to Mina? And then final question, three of the lessons that you've learned across your journey so far as an so entrepreneur? Think, as For sure. I mean, so the first one is that when you look at the number of deals, it's been very lumpy. I'm just looking now at the chart over the last couple of quarters. And if you look at the one over the years, um, one key driver in the MENA region that definitely developed over the last couple of years was the role that accelerator programs had to play in developing early stage startups. They act as a very strong conduit for deal flow at later stage. What I see now is many of the existing players are playing a similar role that the likes of WAMDA, MEVP and Biko played, whereby they're having to play at every stage, the early stage, the middle stage, potentially late stage. In the interview that I made the other day uh, with the investors, they were basically saying, currently we have a lack of later stage. Well, that used to be the case here in MENA until all the earlier stage investors decided, well, now we need to play on the later stage. And all these accelerators started to play a role at the earlier stage. And the more 
entities we kind of reached out to, we heard of incubation centers, we heard of grant programs. I'm not a huge fan of grant programs because I don't believe that they have the same skin of the game in terms yeah. of intellectual capital transfer as accelerator programs. That was one of the things that I saw that was, now again, if we're missing that data, we welcome introductions to any of the accelerator programs to ensure that they're included in future reports. But that was one of the things that kind of drew out as a, as a key differentiator from, from MENA. The second one is that not surprisingly, uh, e-commerce and transport and logistics in terms of industries were the industries that saw the most investment. Exactly the same as we saw in MENA three, four years ago, exactly the same as you would see in any emerging ecosystem. But I believe what I found surprising was there was no fintech startups or, or fintech wasn't as highly represented in the industry breakdown. Um, I'm sure that will change with time, but uh, I believe that no doubt when you look at the infrastructure plays, MENA now sees fintech by number of deals, not by amount of capital deployed, as the industry with the most investment, yeah. surpassing that of um, e-commerce and logistics. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if that comes in the next couple of uh, six months or, or in the next couple of H1s, shall we say, or, or quarters in Pakistan as well. You I mean, we're seeing that is, already. Um, we are seeing a lot of deal flow in the fintech space. Yeah. So I, I think that's, that, that will be reflected. Three lessons for me um, as a founder. I think one is focus. I mean, I, I never claimed that the journey that we had was particularly uh, right. I, I had an idea as an entrepreneur. I stuck to my guns and developed it. But I think that clearly for any startup looking to grow, especially at the earlier stage, Sam Ullman um, from Y Combinator used to say, it's much better for a small group of people to really love your product than a large number of yeah. people to like it. And that's to be known for something that can be identified. And, and that's something that even to this day, we continue to try and develop as magnet, as opposed to trying to, to, to do everything. I think monetization is key. And especially during COVID, cash is king. Um, I think startups, the hyper growth model at all costs, is one that will begin to go away, at least for the foreseeable future. I mean, I think that started to go away with Uber IPO. Right? Correct. And I think it's been accelerated through this because you, especially now where capital deployment and startups, I think it's hyper growth at all costs will begin, will, will be a thing of the past. I think hyper growth with profitable or, or a path to profitable companies will be key and investors are going to look for that. Who knows what bubble comes in five years when people have forgotten about COVID and Uber. So no doubt there will be another bubble that will emerge. But I think for the foreseeable future, having a clear path to sustainable profitability and growing uh, at, a, at a growth rate that is acceptable for investors is something that we have been very dear to uh, and had to try and learn. And for me, another one is that scale is the name of the game ultimately. So while it's hyper growth, not hyper growth at all costs, to be invested as a startup, you cannot think about just the city you are in, the country you're in. You need to think beyond borders. And that is extremely important because what we saw in MENA is that too many people have been very dear to their city and have not thought about how to scale beyond that. And actually, I'll add a fourth if you don't mind. Your, your, your company is only as good as the team that you hire and getting the team that you have is the, the, the secret to your success. And the reason I said that as a fourth after the scalability is because as you think about scaling, people that 
allow you to do that are very different to the people that help you solve for your city. And that's why it just sprung to, it should be the number one thing that I've learned, but, but at the people that you hire and getting that right is not easy. You will make mistakes along the way. They will be costly mistakes, but getting, I, I remember I was fortunate to sit with Magnus from Kareem and he says the, the, the good old adage of um, fire, hire slow and fire fast. It sounds very flippant and easy it is very hard to get right but ultimately when you start learning that um it is the right thing to do philip thank you so much this has been incredible so many learnings from you um thanks for taking out the time thank you very much i appreciate it awesome man cheers thanks have a thank great you. rest of your day i really appreciate it um are you at the office oh man don't ask we got back Thank you so much for listening. If you guys have any comments, your feedback, please do send them my way. Mera direct email address hai amad at caravan.vc Warna aap humare baare mein aur information hasil kar sakte hain on our website which is www.caravan.vc or on Instagram. Um, our handle is at caravan.vc Until next time, Khuda Hafiz. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 